Support for this episode comes from Kathy Rochester and from Newman Latimer and Schwartz LLP, Divorce Attorneys at Law, funded by a generous donation from the Kathy Rochester Association. The Kathy Rochester Association. My ex-husband is a lying bastard. From our studios in Lala Plaza, New York City, I'm Mason Lane. This is Cold Case Crime Cuts. Stories to examine, stories to refurbish, stories to argue with, stories to patch things up, stories that sing, or have been sung, in song. Listen out for them, maybe before you listen to this. Stories? Stories. Cold Case Crime Cuts is a product of NAR, National American Radio, in collaboration with the Surface to Air Sound Collective and our good friends over at Soluble Radio in the United England. They're on Instagram and Twitter at solubleradio.co.com, and they'd love to be interacted with by you at your convenience. Episode 3, Bang Bang. This is Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But first, I want to give you a heads up about a brand new podcast from National American Radio. The people who bring you Cold Case Crime Cuts. Three Points on My Heart is hosted by NAR's culture maven and New York Times bestselling author, Compton Ponsfoot. Every week, he invites a special guest to recall three points in their life where they found themselves at a point in their life. What lessons did they learn on the road to these points? Why did they choose the point paths or roads that they did? Along what roads did these paths take them? And at what point along these roads and paths did they point to the heart? And would they go differently along these paths and roads next time and why and when and also how? And how would they know when they got to the right point again next time? It's a great podcast full of great conversations with a great lineup of great guests chosen from a wide field of great people that Compton already knows, has previously worked with, or who are in his phone contacts. Three Points on My Heart with Compton Punk. Recorded at National American Radio's Los Angeles studios in downtown Los Angeles. Downloadable from the NAR website or from wherever you get your to find us. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm Mason Lane. Welcome back. Now, Pittsburgh might seem like an unlikely setting for a troubling story of domestic dysfunction. Things and people hitting the ground and babies armed with firearms. But this is no ordinary story. And importantly in this case, there's also the question of a particular perhaps even peculiar, sound. The sound of something, quote, awful going, quote, bang. But how awful a sound is it? Entirely awful? Or just a harmless evocation of fatal gunfire? And what if there's two of these sounds, one after the other? Does that make it sound twice as awful? There are so many unknowables to this mystery, and I need to know why. I need to find out why the police haven't charged anyone or solved anything connected to this crime or filled in any of the gaps or sometimes even the requisite forms. It's almost as if this case, like the man at the mystery at the center of the story, had been shot down. From National American Radio, this is Cold Case Crime Cuts. Pittsburgh is a steel town, maybe the steel town, although calling it a town perhaps doesn't do justice to the city, which, after all, is the second largest city in Pennsylvania. Arriving into Steeltown by train and staring out of a traditional window, you might get a sense of a city uneasy with itself. A town in flux, old against new, 21st century dynamism confronting the past in parallel and in every direction. But the train from New York's Grand Central Station takes nine hours, so I flew instead. It's noticeably faster. Think of Pittsburgh, and you might think of the NFL's Pittsburgh Steelers, so-called because Pittsburgh is an aforementioned steel town. Or perhaps the city's hockey team, the Pittsburgh Penguins. A strange choice of name, given it's not a town known for penguins at all. 
no one calls it Penguin Town. In fact, the nearest place to Pittsburgh where you might encounter penguins in the wild is the Galapagos Islands, some 3,000 miles south and also slightly west. And they are a unique breed. The Galapagos penguin is the only penguin found north of the equator. Yet even there, penguins show little interest in ice hockey. It's no surprise that a town with an athletic franchise named after an overtly non-sporting bird should hold a few surprises. And this story is one of them or those surprises. But like a penguin standing on a rock by the cold sea, or even a hot steelworker spending his weekend cooling off at a melted ice rink. Let's dive in. That sound you can hear, that's someone stomping. It's actually me. I recorded it earlier to kind of capture the sound of what stomping round stomping ground might sound like. It's because this, where I am when I recorded it, used to be the stomping ground of a man called Tommy. I don't know his surname at this stage. Could have been something like Torres or Brian with a Y. Or not. That's just one of the missing facts that makes the threads of the twists of this case hard to unravel. She was five and he was six? That's the speaking voice of Barbara Aduke. Bab to her friends. It's her real name. We checked. She grew up around here, and she knew Tommy back when, from infant school. He was a good kid, you know? Three miles from the center of Pittsburgh, Bab lives in the same suburb of Steeltown that Tommy did. This suburb also has a name, but there's no point in me telling you what it is, because you just forget it again. It's that kind of place. It's an agreeable mixture of shops, schools, churches, and dwelling places, many of them almost house-like in structure and appearance. And it was from here, or a place just like it, although those details aren't clear either, that Tommy, or whatever his name was, disappeared. From. He didn't say goodbye to no one. He just vanished one day. And nobody knows why, least of all Gina. Gina is the five-year-old Bab mentioned earlier. Not much earlier, I mean just now. Gina was Tommy's childhood sweetheart. We don't know Gina's name either, but we have to call her something. I heard she still cries to this day. He didn't even say goodbye. Bab is getting ahead of ourselves. Let's backwind. Here's what we know. There's a couple. They were childhood sweethearts. She was five and he was six. They were, and also grew up, together. Like every couple, or an army, they fought. Unlike every couple, or an army, they had a baby. But at some point, things turned physical. Some say this began early on in the relationship, even in the school playground when witnesses say he, Tommy, would always win the fight. But years later, after seasons came and changed the time, right before Tommy disappeared, bang, there was a gunshot. Actually, so the story goes, there were two. But how did it sound? Awful, according to some reports. Also, rumor at the time say the baby was involved. Is that possible? Could a baby handle a gun? And did the baby shoot Tommy or Gina or both? We know from police interviews that Gina hit the ground after the gun went off. She's on the record with that. But what happened to Tommy? Gina says he disappeared. But if he did, and he did, where is he? Did he just take off or is he dead? As far as the police are concerned, this case is still an open book. Case. This is where Gina and Tommy grew up and lived all their lives. Well, all their lives so far. Tommy might be gone or dead, but Gina isn't. So I guess she could go and live somewhere else in the future. Looking around, it's hard to imagine things hitting the ground or any particularly awful sounds around here. But just what type of ground is it? Sure, it can be stomped, I've proved that. But what is the actual ground made of? 
much like Tommy's remains, if he is dead, that remains to be seen. And what of the awful sounds? Could they have been a bang? That too remains to be seen, or heard. But what can be seen is that the story of Gina and Tommy starts 20 years ago on this very ground on which I'm standing now. Specifically, it's a playground. The playground of the local elementary school. An ordered collection of buildings, many of them almost classroom-like in appearance. It's the sort of place where a podcaster pointing a large microphone at a group of children might attract attention. Oh, Tommy and Gina? Oh, I just knew they'd end up married. Yeah, absolutely. Tina Groupon is a teacher at Bloomfield Elementary. She is now older than she was 20 years ago, but her memory seems sharp, like a gun. Her sunny demeanor is clearly hiding a volcanic temper, and I'm aware that the slightest provocation could set her off. They were kind of inseparable. They hit it off right away, even though she was about five and he was around six. Tina is speaking to me in a room. I ask her how old Tommy was exactly. Oh, well, I can't remember when his birthday was, but he was definitely around six. Tina's rage had got the better of her, so we agreed to talk again at a later date when she'd calmed down. Yes, she backed up Bab's story, and yes, the school records suggest that she was five and he was six. But I wasn't convinced. Surely this would have changed at some point. I needed to consult a specialist, Professor F. Natterjack Gasper, senior lecturer in applied physics at Pittsburgh College City. Uh, people's ages can vary uh, enormously, uh, for sure. Uh, anything from just a couple seconds old to right up until the moment they die. Uh, science tells us that a different age can be assigned to any given moment on that time span. Their old elementary school teacher claims that Tommy was a year older than Gina, but would that have always been the case? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's likely, and that would actually be chronologically consistent. Uh, in most cases, the age gap between two children remains the same all the way into adulthood and beyond. But they wouldn't have necessarily stayed five and six. No, uh, they may well have met when they were five and six, but uh, over time, those numbers would increase for sure. Okay, so Tina's story checks out. Tommy would have been a year older than Gina at every point in their relationship, even 20 years after their first meeting, when Tommy had gone, and she didn't know why. But it's here that the story thickens. Remember those awful sounds I mentioned earlier? They're going to be brought up soon. But first, Tommy and Gina's early friendship needed examining. I had to coax some more information from their former teacher, Tina Groupon, one of the angriest people I've ever met. Oh, it was kind of sweet. At recess every day, they would play together. They were just kids, you know, he wore black, she wore white. And they'd run around, they'd fight, they'd ride little horses made of sticks. Horses made of sticks. Stick horses. We'll come back to them later, too. But maybe, just maybe, we should hear it first from the horse's mouth herself. Gina. It was just a silly game. This is Gina now, but she was there at the time. She's been through a lot in her young life, over 20 years of a lot. I can't tell how tall she is because she's sitting down, but I would estimate at least six foot seven. She's understandably wary, and that's understandable, but she agreed to talk to Cold Case Crime Cuts to give her side of the story. A story that is becoming more dubious the more I think about it. Things just weren't adding up. Not their ages, that was easy, 11, but other details. Amongst the horses, which we'll come to, Tina, the angry teacher, had mentioned monochrome clothes and schoolyard fights, so it made sense to start by asking Gina about those. Oh, well, so I wore white, and Tommy liked to wear black. Always? Quite often, yeah. He wore black and you wore white. Why? We both like penguins. 
I remember the ones at Pittsburgh Zoo. So there are some penguins in Pittsburgh. This seems significant, and I pressed on. Tina Groupon says that you two fought each other. Who's Tina Groupon? Your elementary school teacher. My elementary school teacher was called Miss Tyler. This was interesting. Was Tina Groupon lying? Oh, wait. Groupon is her married name. This wasn't interesting anymore. It's a perfectly plausible explanation. Do penguins fight much? I'm not sure. Um, It was just playing around, you know? We were kids. I was five, he was six. Hmm. And who won? Tommy always won the fight. Always. So there was a fight. And Gina's use of the word always suggests that this was a regular occurrence. It was strange. Over the course of an entire school year, Gina never won one fight? Not even by fluke? Or because Tommy slipped or got bored or contracted an illness? And what kind of school allows five- and six-year-olds to fight each other every single day? I needed specifics. Specifically, specific details. It was time to ask her how big the horses made of sticks actually were. How big were those stick horses? About that size, I guess? Gina extends her arms some distance away from each other, and I'm struck by how quickly she seems to recall the size of the horses. It seems almost rehearsed. Too quick. Too practiced. Like a big lie. And they really are horses made of sticks. Yeah? They're... stick horses. What do you want me to say? Gina was stonewalling. I'd pushed my luck, and it had pushed me right back. I knew that something was off about this part of her story. And if this part was off, then maybe the part about her husband going off, her crying, the baby, and things banging and hitting the ground could be off too. But first, I needed to check a horse. I'm Mason Lane, and I'll do just that in part two, which follows after this break. You know... Out here, we do things at our own pace. And if you want to join us, you better take your sweet time about it. That's why Forrester and Gilpin leave every barrel to age for such a goddamn long time. It takes time to drip drops of licking liquor through wood we like to say is made from the wood of folks round here's granddaddy's porches. Some say that's what gives it its unique flavor. Hundreds of years of bare feet trip-trapping up and down where the drip-dropping goes now. Old-time licking whiskey with the mellow tang of grandpappy's feet. Forrester and Gilpin, Barrels of Eternity. What do you want me to say? I'm Mason Lane. This is Cold Case Crime Cuts from NAR, National American Radio. Welcome back to part two. I'm in Pittsburgh, where a childhood friendship between Tommy and Gina, she was five and he was six, is forged by fights that he always seems to win. Fights often conducted on horses made of sticks. 20 years later, he's gone, leaving her and their baby, a baby who apparently accidentally or otherwise shot her down, and less apparently accidentally, maybe shot him down too or instead. But there's another thread hanging over their childhood that's still untethered, and it's a horse-shaped thread that could cast a shadow over the rest of Gina's maybe lies. I'm not in Pittsburgh anymore. I'm back in New York, in the New York Public Library. Pittsburgh does have a public library, but I'm not a member of the Pittsburgh public, and I wouldn't know how to pass myself off as one. In front of me is a copy of Professor Peter Schaefer's Equine Studies, book two, 
and I've been told that this definitive volume is the key to solving the mystery of Tommy and Gina's horses made of sticks. So, what I'm looking at here, page 19, is a cross-section of a horse. And that, to me, looks like skin, muscles. You've got all the internal organs around here and here, a lot of bones, and notably, no sticks. None. Not one. No wood, no carbon fiber, no aluminum either. No sign of anything stick-like at all, in fact. Even the bones, which I guess could be mistaken for sticks if you knew next to nothing about ungulate biology, are clearly bones, because they're labeled as such, with little arrows. Got a lumbrosacral joint here, and a long and short pastern. Not one stick in here. Wow. And reading between the lines a bit, I suspect that a normal horse is bigger than the one Gina outlined with her arms back in Pittsburgh. A lot bigger. This confirmed what I had already started to suspect. Something that the Pittsburgh police had completely ignored when Tommy disappeared all those years later. The horses made of sticks that he and Gina rode when they were five and six, they weren't real horses. Instead, they were fake horses. They had to be, just inanimate toys, unable to breathe, excrete, gallop, reproduce, or whinny. And that made me wonder, what else about this case had been faked? Had Tommy actually had ample time to say goodbye? Had he lied about it? Had anyone else even been shot down by a baby? Or was that all lies as well? I rushed back to Steeltown. It seemed shifty and dishonest now, instead of naively complex. I'm Mason Lane. Here's Gina herself again, after me. You and Tommy, five and six, both penguins. You're having fights on these fake horses made of sticks. Yeah. Not real horses. Of course not. And he'd push you off the fake horse every time? Yeah. And then I'd hit the ground. Your body, slamming hard onto the asphalt. No, I would hit the ground. Sorry, I don't follow. I'd hit the ground with a horse. Oh. He'd push me off. I'd get really annoyed. I'd take the horse made of sticks and hit the ground with it. Bang, like that. Hmm. Sometimes I'd smash it to pieces. Bang, bang. It made an awful sound. If Gina is to be believed, it seemed that I'd got the wrong end of the horse. Could it be that the awful banging sound, which some say this case hinges on, wasn't the awful sound of a gun at all? but rather the awful sound of a toy mammal shattering on the floor of a schoolyard? Yet what it did prove is that Gina is not unfamiliar with sudden explosive bursts of violence. This is NAR, National American Radio. And now we have to fast forward. We have to fast forward 15 whole years. The seasons have come, and they have changed the time. Significantly so. How many seasons? 60. Four to each year. And the time? What exactly has it been changed to? Well, that depends on who you're asking and when you're asking them. I'm asking Gina because she's the key to this whole thing, and I'm asking her at the time this was recorded. He was just gone. Didn't say goodbye, nothing. Gina and Tommy's relationship went from playful fighting to playful loving. They married when she was 20, but there's no way of knowing how old Tommy was then. Their baby son Tommy Jr. was just over a year old now, but would, in time, also grow older. Yet exactly one month after they married, Tommy was reported missing just a few days after Gina had gone to a hospital, claiming to have been accidentally shot by her baby. We'll come to that soon, but it's an indication that this case just keeps getting stranger. Gina says that when she thinks about this time in her life, her face is sometimes overcome with water. Sometimes I cry. To this day, I cry about it, yeah. Which day is this day? Today? I mean, nowadays, yeah. Today. So, up to today, and that's it. Will you cry about it tomorrow? I don't... No. 
another evasive answer. At the time, the police opened a missing persons inquiry, but there was nothing to suggest where Tommy could have gone. He made no contact with anyone, didn't even say goodbye, didn't even take the time to lie. There was no trail to follow, and it was cold. When Tommy was reported missing, naturally we focused the investigation on his wife. Richie Borsamba is a former forensic psychanalyst who worked with Pittsburgh City Police on a number of cases, the number being one, and the case being this one. I suspect that there's a warm heart inside that business-like frosty cage of ribs, but his expression gives little away. He sits way back in his office chair, which looks like an expensive custom model, maybe Scandinavian. There were gunshot wounds. Wait, there were gunshot wounds? So the bang maybe wasn't just the noise of a make-believe hobby horse cracking to bits on the floor? This case was going round in circles, almost as fast as like a spinning bullet. So when the case was referred over to my way, uh, Gina had already told the investigating officers that on the night in question, she'd been trying to change the time on a wall clock. This was new information. What wall clock? A clock on the wall. She claimed she changed the time with the seasons. Daylight savings time, we call it. Starts in March, ends in November. You have to change the clocks. This is true. Americans do this. You can look it up. Anyways, she said she was changing the time, and that was when her baby shot her. Twice. Got a white female in what looks like a 1016 over. This is the actual recording of the police who were dispatched to the scene by police dispatch. They found a woman, Gina, on the floor with two gunshot wounds to the leg and a baby on the couch. But to work out what had happened, they needed to find the smoking gun. That was the easy part. It was next to the baby. Nearby was a broken clock and an overturned chair that Gina told officers she'd been standing on to change the time. Here's Richie Borsamba again, in his chair. The designer Scandinavian one. It's the right way up, unlike Gina's. Obviously, we looked into Gina's gun wounds. They were messy and it was hard to see detail, but they appeared to be real. As for the story about her baby shooting her down while she was standing on a chair changing the time, well, we had no reason to doubt it. Gina claims that Tommy was away on business when it happened, but nobody in the Pittsburgh Police Department ever looked into what business that was. They figured it was his business. The main focus of the investigation was on their relationship. By all accounts, it was good. People said he was a decent guy, good sense of humor, always laughing, apparently. People do say this. Tommy would always laugh and say, remember when we used to play? Like he was nostalgic for something. Like he was looking back on a better time, before the time changed. Short-tempered schoolteacher Tina Groupon concurs. <laughs> oh, every time I saw him, he was laughing. She was so angry. But Gina agrees about the laughter, too, despite crying all over the podcast. Yeah, Tommy was always laughing, all the time. To be honest, it became a little annoying. It was an awful sound. Interesting. What kind of things would he laugh at? He'd laugh when he remembered us playing, back when we were kids. Back before we were married. Before we had the baby. We'll come back to the baby. But it's easy to see how these constant reminders of the past, of the failures, of all those black and white fights Gina lost in a playground could build up over changing time into simmering murderous rage. But then there's the matter of the marriage, or, more specifically, the wedding itself. Gina told me the running order. Music played and people sang. Before going on to claim that the church bells rang just for her. Two things here. First, Gina's claim that music played and people sang would certainly seem like the right order of events, certainly if the song had any kind of introduction. 
but ex-teacher still angry Tina Groupon, Nay Tyler, who also attended the ceremony, maintains that it was the other way around. Singing, then music. She said there was a cappella on the way in. Stranger still is Gina's claim that church bells rang just for her. Now, why would church bells ring for only 50% of a newly married couple? What had Tommy done to forfeit his right to bells? I had to visit the church where they'd married, but I totally forgot to do this when I was in Pittsburgh, so I didn't. I called instead. Hello? Oh, hi. It's Mason Lane from the Cold Case Crime Cuts podcast in New York. Is this the first joint United Church in Pittsburgh? It is. This is Pastor Steve. Uh, Hi there, Pastor Steve. Hello? Hi. I just have a question for you, if that's okay. We're doing an episode of the podcast about a young couple you may remember. Tommy and Gina? Tommy went missing and Gina got shot by her own baby? Oh, of course. I remember all that. How sad. It is. Yes. It is. So their marriage took place at your church, right? Sure. Absolutely. It was a lovely ceremony. Music played and people sang. Huh. Interesting. And when marriages happen there, when you ring the bells... It's a lovely sound. Of course. Yes. But you're ringing them for both parties, right? It's not like just the bride could, you know, claim ownership of the church bells just for herself. Oh, no. Uh, The bells are for both of them. Thank you. That's very helpful. Uh, My pleasure. Oh, you know, uh, we're actually holding our national prayer meeting in New York next week. Maybe you'd like to join us. Oh, no, 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 thank you. That sounds like the worst. Gina claiming to have heard church bells ringing just for her is the most disturbing part of this case so far. It suggests a base level of delusion, paranoia, and, frankly, selfishness. I'm Mason Lane. Her mental state in tatters, perhaps, after 20 years of being taunted over about losing fights, rudimentary penguin costumes, and destroying horses made of sticks, it's perhaps not unreasonable to assume that Gina's wedding day may have been a tipping point. She was hearing church bells just for her. And bells? Well, they go clang. And it's only a small step from clang to bang. It doesn't take a forensic psychanalyst to recognize the close relationship between bang and clang. And here's a psychanalyst to not do precisely that. When I was brought in to assess Gina during the investigation of Tommy's disappearance, I thought that she seemed uh, emotionally distressed. You know, she was crying a lot, which many experts believe to be one of the byproducts of sadness. But I did not believe that she was a suspect, and I did believe that her one-year-old baby had accidentally shot her down off a chair where she was standing to change the time on a wall-mounted clock. I now had one more question for Richie Borsamba and his fancy office chair, and his answer would smash things wide apart. Was she, and is she, clinically sane? As a psychanalyst, I have found Zero evidence to suggest that she is not of sound mind. But which sound is that? Any sound. Could it be an awful sound? Like what? Off the top of my head, like an equine splintering sound? Or maybe the sound of a church bell tolling the words kill him? I... I can't comment. Richie Borsamba had no answer to this, so I took the details of his office chair and left. As I suspected, it was Scandinavian. This is Cold Case Crime Guts from National American Radio. And this is a short break. It'll finish when part three starts, and that's when we'll find out more about babies, guns, and what really might have happened to Tommy. Hi, it's Mason Lane here from before. 
I just want to step out of the podcast for a second to tell you about one of our sponsors here on Cold Case Crime Cuts, and that's the oil-rich sovereign state of Bahrain. Bahrain has been with us since the very beginning, and it's just been a real joy to see this relationship develop over time. And look, I know you'll hear plenty of podcast hosts talking about the Persian Gulf, and, and I get it. You sort of tune it out after a while. But Bahrain is the real deal. Seriously. And this is just Mason Lane talking now. I'm being totally honest about this. I actually use Bahrain a lot, like at least once a week. And it's always been great, super efficient, no messing around. So yeah, check it out online. That's Bahrain.com with two M's. Give it a try. See what you think. I called it mine. That's Gina. Welcome back. This is Cold Case Crime Cuts from New York City. But this episode is about an ordinary suburb in the steel town of Pittsburgh. A different place with its own things happening. Gina and Tommy were married 20-somethings. When they were kids, they used to dress as penguins and play. But Tommy always won. Gina often hitting the ground with a horse made of sticks out of sheer frustration. Buried deep in her subconscious, it was perhaps this banging noise and the constant reminders of these defeats that caused her to believe that the church bells that were ringing on her wedding day were ringing just for her and nobody else. Then, a month after the wedding, Tommy is gone, and nobody knows why. And he's gone without having time to lie about it or say goodbye to Gina or Tommy Jr., their one-year-old human baby. My baby, as Gina puts it. Gina also claims to have been shot down by that very same baby whilst Tommy was away. But nobody saw Tommy before this incident, and nobody's seen him since. My feeling? This is a complicated case. Another of my feelings? Tommy is probably dead somewhere. There was some frankly unhelpful speculation about Gina's mental state and shooting her husband, but it was just that. It was speculation, and the similarity between the word bang and the word clang is just circumstantial. It's not admissible evidence of anything illegal having happened. This is Richie Borsamba again, police forensic psychanalyst and owner of an overpriced office chair. I've checked. It's $1,600. It's not worth that no matter how ergonomic it is. The confidential police report I saw said that there was a firearm in the house. Firearms are still the number one cause of gunshot wounds in America. And that it was discharged at least twice around that time. So that would have been two bangs? Yes. Gina claimed to have been shot down from a chair by her baby while altering the time on a clock due to a seasonal change. Daylight savings time is a real thing. She's not lying about that. You can Google it. But Gina is a tall woman. Very tall. At least 6'7". Remember when I noticed then mentioned that earlier in the podcast? Well, here's the kicker. From police photographs, Gina's house looks like a regular size house with regular size walls. In short, she wouldn't have needed a chair. I tried Gina once more, but I could tell that she was becoming uneasy with my questions. I'm on a chair. I'm changing the time on the clock. And then I hear this bang. There's a pain in my thigh. And I look around. I left the gun lying on the couch. Normally we keep it safely on the table and and I see Tommy Jr. has got a hold of it. And before I can say anything or do anything, he fires it again. Bang! And I so I hit the ground. With a stick horse this time or No, with my body. So even if Gina was plausibly shot twice accidentally by her baby, it still doesn't explain what happened to Tommy. Tommy. Tommy who would laugh at her day after day rubbing her nose in all those playground fights she lost wearing their black and white penguin outfits. 
Maybe she'd just had enough of all that. Maybe it was time for revenge. Had she taken matters into her own gun? There wasn't a fight or anything like that. He just never came home. I don't know why Tommy is gone. I, I don't know. I, I know that people say I shot him down, but that's a lie. I didn't shoot him down and he didn't shoot me down. My baby shot me down. I, I didn't. I, I couldn't. I, I loved him. He was mine. I called him mine. It was at this stage that I failed to ask Gina why the gun had been left on the couch. That might have revealed something. Gina claims that Tommy didn't even say goodbye. Why? Well, maybe it's because he was already dead, in which case he couldn't. She also claims that he didn't have time to lie, but a corpse would have all the time in the world to lie. In the ground. Dead. The same ground, although perhaps in a different place, that Gina hit first with a horse made of sticks, and later with her leg-shot body. It really makes you think. I believe that the baby shot Tommy. And Gina panicked and got rid of the body. Aside from Richie Borsamba, no one who investigated Tommy's disappearance was prepared to talk to the podcast, especially after we told them who we were and what we were doing. Tina Groupon, Gina and Tommy's livid former educator, has her own surprising theory about who shot who or whom. I saw their whole relationship. She always used to call him Tommy. But then after he went missing, she suddenly started calling him mine. I found that very strange. Why refer to him as mine all of a sudden, you know? And suddenly I got it. I ask her for evidence. What she says next is pretty convincing. She called him mine because he's now buried somewhere far below the Earth's surface. This breaks the whole case wide open. Tina Groupon claims that she approached the police with this theory on numerous occasions, but was turned away every time. That may have been because of her temper. It certainly wouldn't have helped. I contacted Richie Borsamba about this. He didn't reply, and Tina is now housed in a secure facility in Wyoming. She has anger issues. So, let's say that there's something in this. There are three possibilities. Either Gina, in a fit of church bell-influenced rage decades in the making, fought with Tommy, they shot each other, and Tommy then died from his injuries. Or, Gina shot and killed Tommy on purpose, and was then shot down accidentally by the baby while changing the time on a clock afterwards. Or, the baby accidentally shot both of them, but only Tommy died from his injuries. In any case, where's the body? Well, remember right at the start of the podcast when I said that Pittsburgh is a steel town? It's not up for debate. It is a steel town. And what do you need to make steel? Coal. Take a look at a map of western Pennsylvania that shows coal mines, and you'll see coal mines dotted all over western Pennsylvania. Then Gina refers to her missing husband as mine. A coincidence? Or a clue as to his final resting place? The unfortunate victim of a dysfunctional horse-fighting childhood and a deranged spouse all squaring up to come full circle? Was he shot accidentally by his own baby? Perhaps. Was he then dumped down a mine shaft by his vengeful wife? Possibly, but we can't be sure. So I would assume so. There's no concrete, cast iron, or steel, or even coal evidence to prove my or anyone else's theories about this case. I'm left wondering whether awful sounds such as gunfire and things hitting the ground are sometimes better to hear than supposedly innocent sounds like laughter and church bells, both of which are inside the dark heart of this mystery. I wish I could have interviewed the baby, but Gina said no, and even though he's now four and able to speak basic sentences, it would have been a frustrating dialogue, and I doubt he can even remember if he shot anyone or not. 
Could I have stayed longer in Pittsburgh to look for evidence? No, I've got some stuff on. However, I do regret returning to New York in the middle of this investigation for the sole purpose of looking at a picture of a horse in a library when I could have just done it on the internet. But, as they always say, hindsight, I've had a few. On the plane back to New York, I think again about looking out of a train window at Pittsburgh. Good old Pittsburgh. Naively complex, yet shifty and dishonest. Divided and teeming with life and death. Maybe one day Tommy will turn up alive and well. Someday. Maybe then we can finally, bang bang, shoot for the truth. Cold Case Crime Cuts is presented by me, Mason Lane. Our program associates are Lance Fuller, Alexander Metaxa, Jake Yap, Alex Sivright, and Naomi Denny. The writers are John Holmes and Gareth Saradig. The wider producers are Patty Fermentine and Laura O'Dongulet. Our associate associate is Cliff Pathmanathan. Anthony Tamaguchi creates mixed media designs inspired by each episode. Soak them in salt water at Cold Case Crime Cuts with two S's. Original music by Jake Yap. Album artwork by Simon Fowler. Our engineers are Tony Chernside and Louis Blatherwick. Executive handling by Jeff Posner and David Tyler. Cold Case Crime Cuts is produced and directed by John Holmes. Thanks to Unusual Productions and Audi. Cold Case Crime Cuts is solidified at the studios of National American Radio at 10 Lala Plaza in New York City. And it is a very proud member of the Surface to Air Sound Collective and our British friends at the UK's Soluble Radio. I'm Mason Lane. Extra special thanks to the Middle Eastern Sovereign State of Bahrain. Hi there. I'm calling from the Cold Case Crime Cuts podcast out of New York City. I have a question. Sure. Could a penguin be trained to shoot a gun?